Our response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. But how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective effort to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Material Change Resourcing Net Zero. Hello and welcome to Material Change, Resourcing Net Zero, an IOM3 and Content with Purpose podcast series, exploring the essential role of the materials, minerals and mining communities in addressing the climate crisis and achieving net zero targets. Now, there's this big revolution under underway, we all know that, uh, but there is sometimes a slight contrast in the messages we hear. Um, the first one is that we need to use less, to consume less, waste less and minimise our footprint, of course. But we also know that to make the future sustainable in the long term, we kind of need more of some stuff, more wind turbines, more solar panels, more electronics. And so, you know, naysayers for the electric revolution, we've all heard it, come up with the same complaint. Where are all these new minerals going to come from? And it's a serious question. I mean, no one ever asked it before, but it's, well, it's high time you should be asking this question. So let's ask it now. And that is what today's episode is all about. We're going to be talking about the extraction, processing and use of materials in the context of net zero and, and seeing how we can supply our long term needs without causing more problems. So as always, we have two excellent guests uh, on this topic. So let me turn to the first guest, which is Jeff Townsend, from who is the CEO of the Critical Minerals Association. Um, now, Jeff, just before we get your perspective, on this. Just tell us a little bit about what the Critical Minerals Association is and what it does. Brilliant. Good afternoon. Um, so the Critical Minerals Association was created in 2020 and it was built out of frustration by the industry that government policies were very much downstream focused. So building electric vehicles, building renewable energy, absolutely what we need to do. But there was no mention of the supply chain. And there was no recognition that a supply chain was necessary to deliver that. So the way the governments work, it was a lot easier to give a voice to a number of companies than it was one single company, uh, unless they are very large. So we created the CMA to, to create that joined up voice uh, and, and to champion really the domestic critical mineral companies and, and industry, what we can do here. Uh, in, in building or providing the building blocks of the future economy. Brilliant. I always like organisations that are formed out of frustration because I think they're often <laughs> very effective. Um, and so what's your perspective then on in the UK at the moment on the extraction processing of use of materials? I mean, what's the because obviously we import a lot, right? So what's the big picture when it comes to the UK? It's a really interesting one. And actually, in the beginning uh, of, of this podcast, you said what, uh, what, where are we going to get these things from? The question is, where are they coming from now? So they are coming from overseas predominantly, but it's our belief that actually we could do a number of um, projects domestically. So the likes of Cornish Lithium or the projects down in the southwest, um, all the way up into Scotland and Northern Ireland, there are viable extraction um, companies operating. But also what the UK has the ability to do is a lot of the midstream capacity, that processing and refining. And that allows us subsequently to get into the next phase, which is the circular economy. Uh, 
and bringing those products when they meet end of life back through into the midstream. And so we do start to use less um, uh, primary extraction processes. And just to clarify then, what's the situation now with with midstream processing, as you describe it, in the UK? Like, is there very much of it going on or is is that still quite a new thing for this country? It's a, it's a relatively new thing. So predominantly globally, um, the midstream is, is, is monopolized by China. So you can't change where the minerals are in the world. They are where they are. They're in the rocks, as you know. Um, but they are, they are, because of cost, usually sent to China to be processed, refined, and put into the next stages. Uh, and that, that provides a lot of issues. Uh, there's ESG compliance issues around that. There's geopolitical compliance around that. Uh, The UK does have some midstream processing in place already, the likes of less common metals with their magnet alloy production up in Ellesmere Port. Very good. Uh, And we are looking at new companies coming on board. And we've started to hear more of those over the last six months. But we are still relatively um, junior in this space. However, it is Given that we have limited resources that we will be able to extract at commercial rate, um, it is the area where the UK has to be competitive and it is the area that we need to, to champion and support as quickly as possible. Material change, resourcing net zero. This episode is sponsored by the Henry Royce Institute and Circular Metal. The Henry Royce Institute supports excellence in UK materials research accelerating commercial exploitation of innovations and delivering positive impact for the UK. Circular Metal is an interdisciplinary research centre aimed at helping the UK become the first country to fully recycle and reuse its metals. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, materialchange.iom3.org. Material Change. Resourcing Net Zero. Let's meet our second guest for today, uh, which is Jeremy Rathall, who is the Managing Director of Cornish Lithium. And I'm particularly pleased that Jeremy is here because I've been to Cornish Lithium. Uh, I've interviewed him before and I've seen their operation. And it is, it is slightly unusual as a mining operation. Uh, so, Jeremy, just tell us a little bit about what Cornish Lithium is, Cornish Lithium is doing and, and why it's a bit different. Hi, Helen. It's great to be uh, talking to you again. I seem to remember it was a very frosty morning we met last time, so this is great to <laughs> to to, uh, to be back. So what we're trying to do in Cornwall is to uh, extract lithium from brine from from water, which is very very deep down in the ground. That um, was formerly identified by uh, Cornish miners who who were in particularly deep mines at the time, where they intercepted uh, geological fractures or, or, or features. Where they, the water, they were full of water, and this water flowed into the mine. It was very, very hot, and they as they analysed it because they were concerned it was salty, and they were long from this long way from the sea, and they found it had a, a, a very high percentage of lithium in it. Um, that was identified by Professor Miller from King's College in 1864. So not, what we're doing is nothing particularly new. It's just that there's now an imperative to extract this vital metal because really lithium is the one metal that without which we cannot transition towards renewable energy because you need to store that renewable energy in something like an electric car battery or 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 electric electricity story battery. And those batteries contain lithium. So it really is an exciting prospect that we can extract that water, extract the lithium from that water using new technology called direct lithium extraction technology, 
and and, and really source this hugely important element uh, for the UK and provide a domestic source. And just give us some context, just give us some, a sort of a, a picture of the scale here, because obviously, you know, every, you know, Cornwall is a, is a it's quite a large area. It sits on top of this large granite intrusion. There's lots of minerals in there. But what's the potential for minerals there compared with the amount of minerals that we in the UK use? Like, is this a sort of, you know, it's a great, it's a helpful thing when we can do it. Every little helps and that's enough. Or, or is this actually a scalable thing? What, where does where does Cornwall sit, I guess, especially for lithium on that scale? I think there's two ways of looking at that, Helen. It's really, um, one, every tonne of metal we can extract in the UK is a tonne that we don't have to import from uh, elsewhere, particularly from um, countries could, who, who could become threatening to our economy, as we've sadly learned from um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, But the scale in Cornwall is really interesting because, as you referred to, there's a very large body of granite uh, sitting beneath Cornwall. It goes all the way from Dartmoor to the Isles of Scilly, it's a huge, great block of what was molten lava at some stage, mid three hundred million years ago, and importantly, that block of of, of granite is heavily mineralised with lithium, one of only five large scale lithium intrusions in the whole world, and and that has resulted in what could be a very, very large scale opportunity to extract lithium from uh, the water, which has been percolating through that granite for millennia. So, but at this stage, we really don't know just how big it could be. Um, we are uh, we've already drilled uh, in two locations in Cornwall and found very high grade uh, high levels of lithium in the water deep down, and so we're really excited about that, and we will be scaling that out in 2023 and the years to come uh, to to, add, to ascertain just how big it is, and that's we think it could be extremely large. Um, the UK needs 80,000 tons of lithium carbonate by 2030, which is tomorrow almost <laughs> so and even if so every ton that we can produce is a ton less we have to import we think at the moment we can we can produce around ten thousand tons of that from our uh, other hard rock projects in cornwall but from the the water projects the for each drill hole we think could produce between 500 and a thousand tons per annum but if you multiply that many times it could be very large indeed well, I mean, we should also probably just mention that the, the footprint of what, because this is extracting what's pumping water up and down, there's no sort of open pit mining here. It's the, the footprint on the ground is quite small. So it's it's a really interesting way of extracting um, those minerals. There's just, Jeff, a second. Um, what, which, are the, which are the most important minerals in this discussion that in the UK we've got some chance of joining, you know, joining the global supply chain on? Because obviously, you know, lithium in Cornwall, is that an exception? Are there other minerals that, that we might be able to extract and process in the UK? And which are the most important minerals? Because, you know, we hear about lithium and cobalt especially, but what else is, is important? That's a really good question, Helen. Of course, um, the definition of a critical mineral is, is different for every country and for every company. So um, what's important is, is, is an interesting one. What we have in the UK, and I think we should be really looking into, so we, we do have the likes of tin as well as lithium down in, in Cornwall. Um, and we also have a huge deposit of tungsten in, in Devon, which is very useful. Um, but we also have other opportunities. We, there's copper in Northern Ireland and, and up in Scotland. There's there's nickel as well, potentially. I think the big ones, though, in reality, let's let's say the big the big three would be 
the lithium, tin and tungsten in all in the southwest. So that's for the UK, those are the ones that we could produce? Those are the ones that we could do and we could produce quickly. And we are in a race. We're in a race against other nations, but we're in a race to meet the net zero ambitions that we have set up with the Paris Accord. So it's something like three billion tonnes worth of new minerals and metals are going to be required to build the renewable energy to stop uh, global warming uh, going above two degrees. So we're in a race to, to achieve that. And, and so in the UK, very quickly, tin, tungsten and definitely lithium. And how does the, I mean, these questions, which, as you say, should should have been asked before about about the where things came from and the impact, because it was always, you know, I think if you ask someone 20 years ago what their car was made of, they just kind of look at you blankly. And even now, I don't think people have a good idea, even of where steel comes from, you know, which which makes up a, a, a huge proportion of of what we you know consume or use and i'm i'm interested in um basically in the in the accountability because people are because it's not just about the price i think or consumers might like to think it's not just about the price it's about do we know that this was sourced in an ethical manner do we know that the workforce was treated well do we know that geopolitically we're not making any anything any worse <laughs> you know how and i know this is a big thing but how Perhaps Jeff first and then Jeremy, how how much is the accountability question changing the game in reality and how do we do it? It's a really good question. And it's got to be one of the pillars of which the future economy is built on. Right. So one of the mantras I always say uh, is we can't build a better tomorrow if we accept irresponsibility today. Um, and it, it's a it makes no sense to build an electric vehicle uh, if the minerals you get out of the ground make the world a worse place than it would have been otherwise. So, so that that's a mad thing. So, ESG, environment, social, and governance, is is the big buzzword. It's it's a it's a in my eyes, it's the next step and the next evolution on from CSR, and and it's only really just started. We we are not at the finished end of ESG, and I think that is going to continue to to evolve and and to shape the way that business is done. And like you said, and it, it, we are getting to a stage, and this was this was told to me in Parliament the other day. Um, they're starting to talk about something called social social capitalism. Which um, is is a is a generational thing of all things. Actually, is it's the younger generations, and it's a very nice Western world ability to have. Um, but it's where you start to put a value against your ethics or morals. So that's the kind of uh, of space that we're finding ourselves going into, and this has become really big business. So the likes of Volvo and Boeing and and Tesla are are spending tens of millions on tracking through blockchain ledger systems and applying ESG thinking and thought leadership into this space. So yeah, really, really uh, central to where we're going to. And Jeremy, what do you see on the ground? Because I mean, you're literally on the ground, like uh, pulling things out of the ground. What what sort of what questions do you get asked about accountability? Are people prepared to pay a premium for your the minerals you produce? What do you see down at the sharp end on this? Um, it's an interesting topic because I don't think people are necessarily yet prepared to pay a premium, although I think that people will want to know where the lithium in their car has come from. 
that, and if it's come from a place which has been produced with fossil fuels, where it's been processed with fossil fuels, I think they will be less keen to buy that car. And that's what's exercising the minds of the big automotive companies at the moment. They're worried about, you know, if they're producing something with child labor, say from the, the Democratic Republic of Congo or from another place with less strict environmental legislation than, say, the UK. Um, I think they, they're very worried about that. But I, I do think that there will be a premium in the future, but we're not, going to, we're not counting on that at all. We need to be able to produce um, our lithium within the current cost curve, really, and also with the strict environmental rules that um, not only apply in the UK, but which we are prepared, which we are very keen to actually get better than that, to, to do the things in the best possible way. Um, we can produce our lithium with associated heat from the geothermal waters that that actually is capable of decarbonizing uh, industry. We've got a, a joint venture already announced with Rodders Clotted Cream um, where we can actually help to decarbonize. It sounds a bit odd, but... Who doesn't want a sustainability project that involves Cornish lithium and clotted cream and making the world Absolutely. a better place? I mean, you know. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it, it, it's great for their, for their brand. It's great for, for us that we can produce that. And I think if you can, you know, if you're a young person and you think about what you, that you, you know, what, what keeps you awake at night is that, that, that keeps you awake is probably uh, climate change, which we started this whole discussion with. So what, what can I do as a young person to mitigate climate change? And what you can do is be involved in the mineral supply chain where these minerals are essential to the energy transition. Without lithium, there is no energy transition. We might go back. We might as well go back to burning fossil fuel. So, if you're a young person, you can say, "I can get involved in this in this industry. I can become a chemical engineer, or or a minerals extraction engineer, or whatever." And and I can really imagine a future where minerals can be produced domestically with a very low or zero carbon footprint or possibly even negative if you're extracting energy, other energy at the same time. And that really is really what we're all about, is to try and do this to secure a domestic supply for the UK, but in an extremely responsible and sustainable way. And is there any kind of standard, you know, is there a badge, something like the fair trade badge? You know, I mean, this, these things kind of come and go and they have varying degrees of effectiveness, I think, because you need good accountability and standards and all of that. But is there any, is there going to be, is it something where the UK could lead? You know, here's our little badge that says we've checked this has been done to some standards. I guess it's hard because every site and every mineral has its own considerations. But is that the way it will go or does it all just get tracked kind of individually you know, you have to pass on your information to somebody far, far down the chain. It, it, it undoubtedly will become a single uh, method of, of, of evaluation. And it already, it's interesting that if you talk to investors, the first thing they read is not the profit and loss account anymore and the annual report. It's the sustainability report. You know what, that's the most optimistic thing I've heard in years. <laughs> Because that's the point where it changes, right? Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's genuinely that's genuinely true. You know that you don't get through to some of these investors until their 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 sustainability guys have read and vetted your credentials. Otherwise, you don't even get through to the to the fund manager. So so we've produced a sustainability report, even though we don't need to. We're not a listed company. We're not even. We're not. Um, we're still private. So because we think that's so so important, um, it. 
we 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 have adopted the United Nations uh, credentials at the moment, but we will come to a standard ESG and emissions standard whereby your scope one, two, and three emissions are measured, your responsibility is measured, your net diversity is measured, and and everything is is carefully measured. And that's what goes back to Jeff's um, topic about the the blockchain. Blockchain enables every single ton of metal to be uh, evaluated for its carbon credentials its sustainability credentials and that's a that's a high bar but it's one that we aim to achieve in the in fact i think it's absolutely essential or else your social license to operate uh, your communities will just simply not let you do it and i'm interested in something that intersects with this which is that you know the, the minerals themselves are obviously important uh you know you need them to, to generate energy but i'm also interested in the energy used to extract minerals and to process them. You know, Jeff, you were talking about this midstream um, part of the chain, which is kind of missing in the UK a bit at the moment. Do we have enough energy? Because, I mean, a lot of those processing things are really energy intensive, right? And everyone's trying to, there's this process at the moment where everyone's trying to you know, make the energy things somebody else's problem. So do we have enough energy in this country? Can we supply enough energy to to do the extraction, to do the midstream stuff effectively? Um Helen, that's a really good question. And, you know, I had um, I had lunch the other day with people from the National Grid and from power companies and a few other places, and I had three different answers. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Look, um, yes, technically, I think there is enough energy. Given that the energy comes in, in peaks and uh, peaks and troughs, um, it might be easier if, if in the future if we are able to uh, regulate that. And that comes down to a whole host of different things, whether it's using technologies at home, business, etc. Um, we do have wonderful. I mean, the good thing about the UK is it's very windy. Uh, which means we have a lot of renewable energy, which is great. Uh, and we do actually have, I think, the highest um, renewable energy content on our grid in Europe, which is a really attractive thing for, for you know, for industry to say that you are using renewable energy. Um, <clears throat> where we struggle in the UK, unfortunately, is the cost. And this is pre-Ukraine. Um, uh, our energy costs in the UK are just not competitive. Um, and so we have to find a way of making our energy costs more competitive if we want to make it more attractive to the midstream to set up here compared to options in Europe, let's say. And I think that's important because the downstream uh, market is the European market. It's not just the UK or just the EU. It's a whole uh, region. Go on, Jeremy, because of course you've got this geothermal thing, which may or may not work in other places. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, so so thanks, Alan. We 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 do have the, the geothermal. We're not produce, looking to produce power from geothermal. We're looking to produce uh, heat energy, and obviously, about thirty percent of the UK's energy consumption is actually heat, as we're all finding out right now, <laughs> freezing in our houses. So not as as bad as other places, which we should always remember. But that is a, still a source of large carbon emissions is our heating. Uh, and and really in Cornwall we know that we can drill down we can extract water fifty to to eighty to ninety degrees centigrade enough to heat places and to decarbonize industry but also Cornwall is a uh, has high aspirations to produce floating offshore wind lots of it and I think it's very important as we went back to an earlier question do people care the carbon content of those metals where did they come from the steel that goes into your car the aluminium, the lithium, the tin, everything else. If we can produce that with, with low or zero carbon wind energy, 
we're on onto a real winner. And that's a very important point for the UK. And as, but the only thing, as Jeff has already mentioned, is the cost of that energy when it's benchmarked against gas, which is it was, seems a bit crazy to me. Um, hopefully that will change and we'll be able to go off-grid off uh, transactions with the, wind, with the wind farms and make the UK a really, really attractive place to um, produce and process metals. Well, I think the ambition in this country is definitely to produce a lot more energy than we use. You know, if you look at the proposed wind farms alone, never mind solar and everything else, like that, it's it's multiples, especially in Scotland, I think. So the energy may be there. OK, so let's move on to geopolitics then, because, you know, let's just cover all the hard topics. Um, so in the, the question of the supply chain, like how much are government minds being focused on this problem because of current geopolitics? Like it feels as though... You know, it was always there with oil. There were always these countries which were sort of, you know, no one really wanted to do business with or be seen to do business with, but they had the oil and, and so it all just carried on. Do our governments now more aware of, you know, we're seeing this kind of not quite anti-globalisation, but countries are becoming much less willing to rely on a, on global supply chains. How, how does the geopolitics play into what happens on the ground and what governments do about it, uh, Jeff? Yeah, I think it's a really, really important part of this whole story. Um, and I wish it wasn't, but it is. Um, so mines were focused by COVID and by the war in Ukraine. And while critical minerals in 2020 in the UK were not seen as an issue, and in fact, the leader of the house stood up and said, there is no problem, we'll buy from the international market. Two years later, we have a critical mineral strategy uh, its first part is Accelerate, which is all about improving domestic uh, production. And its second part is all about collaborating with partner nations. So you can st you can see how quickly a transition there has been from there is no problem to there is definitely a problem. Um, and I think it's I think you have to look at the the major player. Look, China's China has understood this since 1972. It's 50 years into its strategy. We're, we're two years into our strategy. Um, so there's a major change um, that needs to happen. But China has, if you look at its five-year plan, five-year plan 14, so they need a 5% uh, GDP growth per annum until 2035. That's their ambition. And to do that, they want to move into producing more of the downstream products, electric vehicles, magnets, etc., um, okay, good, fine. That's your that's your role as a government to see what you can do and to promote. What does that mean, though? That means less of their midstream production will make it into the international market as more is used domestically, and that's supported by legislation that came out in 2020 in the Chinese government that said they would be able to stop the export of strategic materials to foreign governments or foreign uh, foreign foreign nations or foreign companies that were in competition with domestic. So what we're seeing is a contraction or a potential contraction of, of the international market of critical minerals. Uh, those critical minerals being used as a diplomatic tool. They have been, look at Japan in 2010. Um, and you are with focused eyes from Ukraine and Russia, suddenly geopolitics is a real issue. So how do you create an alternative market in the time frame that you need to do it. Um, ultimately, that most of the countries we're, we're looking at now are, are trying to do more domestically and are trying to partner with uh, other nations. 
Um, some are more partnering with others and, and others are trying to attract more domestic production. But it's those two kind of strategies at the moment. And and oh, oh, in Cornwall, how how does the does geopolitics affect you at all, or are you just busy getting on doing what you're doing, and and none of this really touches you? It, it, that's a, really, a big issue, or well, not a big issue actually. Cornwall's extremely important, extremely uh, focused on this. The Cornwall Council are very focused on it because they believe it could be a fantastic industry of the future. Cornwall's got a 4,000-year mining history. It still produces China clay. That industry's been going for 275 years. And and really, you know, the China clay industry has been run down for the last 20 years. And, and really, there was not much hope for Cornwall, uh, for, for its economy. Um, the last tin mine shut down in 1998. And this is this is a real possibility of of regenerating the Cornish economy uh, to produce both uh, critical metals, as Jeff's already mentioned, uh, tin, potentially copper, lithium, heat. You know, from that heat, you could grow tomatoes in greenhouses. You can do all sorts of exciting stuff. So, really, geopolitics is is a very definite tailwind and positive tailwind for us in Cornwall. And geopolitics in the UK is also a, a positive tailwind because the government has recognised the huge importance of a domestic supply chain, not least because of the Russia-Ukraine war and COVID, but also the uh, rules of origin that come in in 2027, which mean that any part of a vehicle that's produced, not just electric car, but all cars, has to be 57% has to be produced in the UK or, or Europe. Otherwise, it gets a tariff, and therefore, it would quickly put the UK automotive industry potentially out of business. So producing that stuff here in the UK means we don't have to import it. Every job every job we can create here is a job we don't have to send over to, to China. Um, it's a really strong geopolitics in our favour um, for the first time in many, many years. But really, in Cornwall's case, it's going back – back to the future it's but it's back to where they started which is extracting uh critical metals which are uh, helping the industrial revolution that was the case back in the last industrial revolution it's the case now uh jeff and i guess the uh the benefit of all of this is that the more you do domestically or the more you do in partner nations the better your oversight of esg and ensuring that you are supplying those products in a way that uh you know the downstream consumers want Okay, so so we're coming to what this is a huge discussion. It could go on for hours, but it's not going to, um, which is slightly sad in the way. But I, getting towards the end, I do just want to ask you both about timescales because you know it's great to say that you know extraction and processing capability in the UK should increase, but as you know, as you've both pointed out, this these deadlines for net zero are coming up. These are huge industries to scale up. You know, if you suddenly want to start producing minerals on the scale you're talking about being you know the potential then you know is there is there time to do this quickly enough basically how quickly is it possible to move when you're talking about you know finding sites getting permission training a workforce these are huge changes so yeah just a comment from both of you on timescales if you would Uh, jeremy first well the timescales are absolutely critical because as jeff has already said we're in a what we're in a race to critical minerals race to net zero um and in a, a global arms race really in that respect as well so it is important that we get there quickly um can we get there quickly in cornwall absolutely we can the real 
inflection point for demand for these critical minerals in the UK is going to be around the middle of this decade, around 2025-26, where suddenly um, Britain will be producing its own electric vehicles, its own batteries, hopefully, um, when that demand for that material is necessary. Can we be in production yet then? Yes, absolutely. We believe we can be producing around 10,000, 8,000 to 10,000 tonnes of lithium carbonate by 2026, mainly because the industrial sites already exist. Our open pit mine is a is already an open pit. It was a former China clay mine. Um, our processing site is a former China clay processing site. It has a railway. It has access to port. It has gas. It has electricity. Everything that you could possibly want is already there. So we can do it very very quickly. It's a huge advantage uh, for the UK that we could do that. And our drill sites for geothermal water, it's very quick to drill those drill holes. Um, we've really got used to doing that now. Uh, pumping the water up to surface, putting it through new technology, which is called direct lithium extraction technology. That's very, very quick. We know how to do it. We could be in production very quickly, uh, albeit on a, a smaller scale. But multiplied many times, you suddenly had a lot of production. So really, it's all about finance as ever and, and access to that finance. Uh, uh, but otherwise, yes, we can be in production when we need it to be in very quickly. Thank you. And Jeff, more broadly, like what, you know, what are the, what's the, what's the deal with the timescales here? Can this happen quickly enough? Um, so EVs, if you remember originally, uh, all cars sold by 2040 and that was pushed forward to 2030. Um, can we meet that, uh, in the European regional context, America, um, I'm not so sure, to be honest with you. I, I don't think that we have the time to get the extraction out of the ground. There are there are companies out there that can do it, but on a massive scale, uh, probably not. But you know what? If we hadn't moved it forward to 2030, we'd probably be having this conversation in a decade's time. Uh, and, and we definitely wouldn't be hitting that 2050 ambition of, of keeping global uh, climate warming down down by under 1.5 degrees so um look it's it's a struggle we are we are going to struggle to hit the wider um time scales just you know it takes what jeremy knows better than i do but 12 to 15 years to bring a bring a mine from extraction to production now you can shorten that it is about finance. Jeremy's absolutely right. It's about finance. But if you can streamline the, pro the planning applications, if you can make it easier to determine mineral access, you can, um, you can find ways of cutting two, three years off of that system um, that just are there because of inefficiency. So we can help by doing little things. If everyone does little things, we can make it a little bit easier to meet those timeframes. Um, the only thing I would throw into the into the mix is, and this is brought in by the American Inflation Reduction Act, is we are in a race amongst friends. And timescale-wise, will the UK be able to act and create that attractive, um, you know, that attractive ecosystem for the critical mineral sector when the Americans have brought in the IRA? and uh, are, are offering money hand over fist for you to, to ship everything over to America. That makes it, that speeds up their system and puts us on the back foot. 
So, you know, if everyone plays nice, it might be a bit easier. Well, I like I like the point that um, deadlines focus minds, because I think that is exactly right. You set a later deadline, everyone just doesn't think about it for 10 years. And so having, you know, it, it is great to ha- be having these discussions, because I think this is, you know, this is what this is when things happen. Like we're taking this seriously now. OK, we are we're out of time. Just wrong quickly from both of you. If you could you know, broadcast a short message on this, like, you know, you had your billboard outside Parliament or somewhere on, you know, some public place, the message the world needs to know about this, that the critical points that, you know, people in the industry and perhaps outside, you want them to know what you want them to think about, what would it be? Um, Jeremy first. I think what I'd want them to know is, is that Britain actually is capable of producing its own domestic sustainable supply of these critical raw materials that are needed for the energy transition. And I'd also like to say to young people, this is the greatest challenge uh, of your lives, that really to be part of the energy transition, the, the being part of the minerals industry is very, very exciting way of achieving that. Good advert. Uh, Jeff? Yeah, very similar to Jeremy. I was going to say that um, as we try and stop climate change and, and the threats that, that brings to the whole world, the only way you can do that is through critical minerals as a foundation of the future economy. So understanding that everything is everything as we move forward is going to be based on critical minerals is kind of key. Brilliant. Well, I think you have both made that case uh, very clearly, which is great. So uh, thank you to both of you. Um, Jeff Townsend from the Critical Minerals Association and Jeremy Rathall from Cornish Lithium. Thank you to everybody who is listening. I hope we've given you a lot to think about um, in this. It's really when people do talk about this a lot, it's a big question. So I hope you've got some food for thought and join us again for the next episode. And I will see you then. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, the Henry Royce Institute and Circular Metal. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Material Change Resourcing Net Zero digital series by going to materialchange.iom3.org or simply searching for Material Change on social media or Google. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations.